I would like my daughter's generation not to have to sit down and think about how do we deliberately divide the mental load. I would like it just to be something that they've seen growing up. It's just what's done and, and how we live. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Robin Miller, a medical doctor who has spent the past 10 years helping people from all walks of life in all sorts of places, from rural hospitals in Australia to refugee camps in Africa. Now living in Brisbane, Robin is completing her specialist training in paediatrics. She gets a lot of enjoyment out of working with children, and she and her partner recently welcomed a child of their own. Since becoming a mum, life has taken an interesting turn for Robin, who found being a working mother brought some unexpected challenges. Like many women, she experienced the overwhelm of the mental load, that exhausting mental work of keeping everything on track in your home life, your family life, your social life, and your career, which still seems to fall to women in particular. When she couldn't find the support she needed, Robin decided to draw on her own skills and experience to develop some strategies for her and her partner to share the mental load in a more equal way. And it worked so well for her, she's now turned it into an online course to support other women too. Here's my chat with Dr. Robin Miller. So Robin, you've had such an interesting career to date and you're clearly someone who isn't afraid to step outside your comfort zone. But I wanted to start with where you grew up because you're living in Brisbane now, but you went to uni in Sydney. So are you a Brisbane girl originally? A Queensland girl, yeah. I was born in a town called Jindawi, which is on the Darling Downs and you can no longer be born there. Oh, really? Why? <laughs> oh, it's just a, a very small town with a very small hospital. Uh, but then my parents were teachers and so the Jindawi school only went to grade 10 and so mum and dad decided to move to another town called Pittsworth, which is also on the Darling Downs, which had a high school through to grade 12. And so I moved there when I was two and lived there until I moved to Sydney for uni at the age of 17. Yeah, you were quite young, I noticed. Um, so you must have known quite early on that you wanted to be a doctor. Where did the interest in medicine come from? It's a good question. I think really early on, I always wanted to do physiotherapy. I have no idea why, but I sort of got stuck on that for many years from when I was about 10 to really towards the end of high school. And then I had to, I guess, think about it seriously. And I didn't really know what to do. And then it was actually my mum who said, oh, what about medicine? I was like, oh, yeah, I could I could do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds and, easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think because at the time Queensland didn't have a, a medical school that you could enter from, and they, um, well, I guess James Cook had opened, but um, in Brisbane there was no medical school that you could go to straight from high school. I just hadn't really considered it. And then when I did, I thought, actually, I'd like to do that straight away and you know, see what it's like. And once I decided to do it, I guess I was you know, very set on it and just applied as a lot of high school graduates do across the East Coast of Australia. And then uh, was uh, able to start medicine at UNSW and had chosen that because I was also interested in arts and really enjoyed history at school. I was keen to learn a language as well. And I hadn't really had the opportunity to do that at a, quite a small local high school. And so UNSW allowed me to do arts combined with medicine. 
And I really enjoyed doing a Spanish major and spending one semester on exchange in Spain as part of my degree whilst doing medicine, even though I knew at the end of the day it was going to be medicine that would be my career. It was just really, I guess, an opportunity that I really enjoyed and has been, you know, a hobby and something that I have continued to enjoy and continue to gain benefit from having that broader education Mm. yeah because I think I've always thought of medicine as being quite a specialized degree so it's nice to think that you can combine it with other interests especially in those early days when you're still figuring out perhaps which way you're going to go with it yeah and it was really even when I didn't I knew I was going to end up being a doctor but it was just I guess that chance to have a another point of view and what it taught me was just how much our education teaches you how to think and that there were other ways to think and there was no one right way to think there was I guess logical ways to think and thinking patterns that suited different professions and different areas of our life better and I guess even being in Sydney would have opened your mind and your worldview a bit having come from a smaller town how did you find that experience of moving to the big city of Sydney look to be honest I was very homesick initially I moved to college which was nice because it's a very supported environment and there's lots of other people who are away from their families but I did get very homesick and more homesick than I expected because I had grown up knowing that I wanted to go to university and just thinking oh well you move away from home to go to university but in time, I really enjoyed I enjoyed my time in Sydney um, and then also did the final two years of my degree in Albury, Wodonga, where there okay. was a rural clinical school. And so that was, I guess, an opportunity to get back to, I guess, more of a regional country origin and, and um, hospital. Mm. And you mentioned being in a rural area and I noticed after you did graduate, you spent a few years working in both urban and rural medical practices. What were you doing in those early days and was the reality of working as a doctor what you hoped it would be? So I did my first year back in Toowoomba, so moved back home and just thought I'd spend a year at home with the idea thinking that I would go overseas relatively soon and so being home was just a chance to yeah have a bit more time with my family before doing that and then because I wanted to do pediatrics it made sense the year after that to come down to the MARTA when it was still the MARTA Children's Hospital and spend most of that year working there and then that was when I really decided, no, what I'd always wanted to do was work for Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. And that was one of the reasons why I'd chosen to do the language in the first place, to allow me the opportunity to work in other countries. It was encouraged as part of the application process to have worked in a regional place as well. So I took a job in Charters Towers in North Queensland in general practice in the lead up to then applying for Medicines on Frontier to gain that broader experience and that experience of not being where you have instant access to an MRI scan and whatever subspecialty medical service you know you'd like to call upon. And You spent a year overseas working as a field doctor in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Chad and South Sudan. That must have been so far removed from anything you'd experienced to date. What was that experience like and how did you prepare for something like that? 
I don't think you really can prepare. I had read a lot of books and blogs and stories of people who had done similar work, and that was probably the best preparation. I remember doing the interview process for MSF, and they have quite a structured interview to sort of ensure that you have a realistic expectation of of what the work and what the living conditions will be like. And so when I was doing the interview, they said, or something about or how do you handle stress and I talked about doing some yoga and some meditation and I left the interview thinking oh they must just think that this you know 26 year old can think she can go to the middle of Africa and just do some yoga and meditation and it's all going to be okay (laughs) and then I was surprised to my surprise successful and they then you know soon after sent out this email saying Getty RDC which was the town I was sent to in the um, RDC, so DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was there um, that as part of the briefing documents, I was given the what to do if you're taken hostage doc- document, wow. which I'd never really <laughs> considered. But when you did read it, basically it was just some breathing exercises and some meditation. Oh, really? <laughs> and that was the answer <laughs> of how to prepare and what to do. So you're on the right track. <laughs> wow. I mean, can you describe the kind of environment you were working in over there and what you were doing day to day? So it was mainly working in paediatric medicine. Um, in the Congo, we were in a territory which was very disputed between the government and rebel forces, and we were providing the only paediatric care and the only emergency care there alongside what was uh what was the government-run hospital but was very limited in terms of resources. So we were dealing with a lot of children with things like um, malnutrition, malaria, um, and had a big outpatient malnutrition program as well. And originally I was supposed to be there for six months, but it was only sort of a few weeks in when the violence erupted between the rebel-held, you know, the rebels who were trying to hold the territory and the government and I was evacuated back to the capital city of the state. And we sort of hung out there doing some pharmacy inventory and doing a bit of translation work for the media uh, reports that were going out. And then they said, oh, well, um, it looks too dangerous to go back as a you know first, uh, first mission doctor. So you go home. And I was so disappointed. I was like, I've spent, you know, so many years working towards this goal. I said, I'm happy just to go back to Europe because I was working through the Geneva office of um, MSF. I'll just go back to Europe and hang out there and see if there can be another project I can go to. And then, yeah, it was the next day they said, oh, actually, there's a huge malaria epidemic in Chad. So could you go there? And so it took another week to get my passport back because it had been flown to Kinshasa, the capital of the Congo, to get my visa. Then I could head on and then work in Chad, which was again a similar project of a paediatric malnutrition centre working alongside a government hospital. But they had just had an enormous increase in the number of patients because of the malaria peak. And there had been about three or four tents, but now they just set up another four or five tents. So it was just a tent hospital in this desert, really, really hot. And you'd be walking around um, barefoot, basically, because it was um, culturally appropriate to take off your shoes when you're walking inside inside the tent. So you're walking around between all these mattresses, trying to work out if the children actually are still sick with malaria or are they just you know, really hot and bothered because it's 40 degrees and you're in a you know, plastic sheet tent. Wow. Um, but um, 
and so that sort of lasted again a couple of months until the malaria epidemic passed by. Um, and then that was when I decided to come home. So that was most of uh, five months and it was getting towards Christmas. And I thought, I'll come home and then uh, see what else happens. Um, and when I came home, I spent a couple of months here and then there was another project that I was offered in South Sudan, which was a, um, a bit of a different project because it was not otherwise established. It had really just been established in the last couple of months in a displaced people's camp that had really, there'd been nothing there. And then all of a sudden sort of 80,000 people had crossed the Nile to this place of safety. And so we were providing all of the uh, not all of the community-level healthcare, but a lot of the community-level healthcare and certainly all of the inpatient care that was uh, required for that population. Mm. And did you ever feel scared while you were over there? Look, I think there were things that you look back on, but at the time, I think you have a better perspective even at the time of you know just knowing what feels scary and what doesn't. I did get sick in South Sudan. I got malaria myself and that was scary because I sort of got sick and I realized I, uh, that I was sick and that I had malaria. So I started taking the treatment and then I got lots of side effects from the treatment and then I was sort of questioning my own diagnosis. And obviously there was another Australian doctor and, and so I was talking to her and trying to work out if I was on the right track with my own self-diagnosis and not and trying to not self-diagnose. But that was probably the um, biggest personal challenge of just working through that. And what have you carried with you from that experience? I think from that experience, I would say it really – look, It's. I think it's sometimes you don't see in yourself what other people see in you. I remember at the end of being in Chad, a really good friend of mine who's an, also a doctor in Australia was in South Africa for a conference and so we met up and did a little bit of travel around Namibia and Botswana and it was around there that she said to me, Rob, you just seem to really be able to solve any problem. and. I don't think I'd noticed that in myself, but I think it probably had taught me a lot of just problem-solving skills because I had just had to kind of sort things out. Uh, and so that was, I guess, one thing, and, and I think she was probably right that that was one thing that I took away. And then the other thing it is that you just never um, forget how lucky we are to have what we have here, to have a warm shower, to have access to food, to ha know that our families are safe, um, there's, you know, it's I guess it's not something years later now that I think about on on a daily basis, but I would think about it relatively frequently and do just really appreciate, yeah, what we have. Look, I could ask you a million more questions about your experience there because I'm very personally interested in that, but we should keep moving on. Um, so you mentioned you did return to Australia about a year later and you continued working in paediatrics at that point. What did you enjoy or what do you enjoy about providing care to children in particular? It's just fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fun to work with uh, the kids and often a lot of um, paediatric illnesses are relatively short uh, thankfully and a lot of the kids do get better and, and even the more long-term uh, medical um, illnesses that children can have you can still form really nice relationships and watch the children grow um, throughout that time so I think I just really enjoy that. 
And your hubby's a doctor too, right? Yeah. And does he work in the same area of medicine as you? Anesthetics is his area. So, yeah, he's also doing specialty training at the moment. Oh, I see. And the two of you recently welcomed a baby girl of your own. How old is she now? She's almost a year and a half now. So, <laughs> And can you yeah. tell us a bit about your experience of becoming a mum? So I must say I had a very smooth pregnancy and delivery and, you know, I was very healthy and Hannah was healthy. So we're really lucky uh, from the how easily and smoothly everything uh, went there. And I really enjoyed all the initial sort of newborn uh, phase, feeding, sleeping, everything was going really smoothly um, at that stage. And I really enjoyed that. But after a few months, I think I was ready to start working again uh, and I went back when Hannah was just over six months old. And how did that sort of going back to work part become a bit of a turning point for you? So initially I really enjoyed being back at work. I went back part-time, I had a really good job share partner uh, and I enjoyed sort of the balance of having a couple of days at home with Hannah and a couple of days at work where I'd be you know, applying my brain in, in different ways and getting back to, I guess, my role as a doctor and something, I guess, from an identity point of view, I'd always held on to um, and was an important part of, of who I was. I think what changed and what I realized, though, was um, looking at the way it is as a working mum compared to being a working dad, there's a lot more juggle that you seem to feel being the working mum compared to being the working dad and that was in part because I was working part-time and my husband was working full-time but even beyond that I could notice that I had sort of inadvertently in the six months off taken on a lot of a lot more of the organizational things and I knew where things were and I knew Hannah's routines and I knew when she was about to outgrow her clothes and noticed that and repacked up the other clothes and all of that sort of work is what I guess I'd taken on and then once I was back at work in a you know in a paid employment sense I wanted to try and work out a way to readjust that. Mm. And can you remember any specific moments or examples that was were really impacting you at that time or was it more just the little things that were starting to build up? I think it really, when it came down to it, it really was all that mental load. It was the fact that I was remembering when our puppy needed to have the next vaccinations. It was me noticing when nappies were running out or wipes were running out and getting new ones. It was me researching sort of new foods and things to introduce to a toddler and what I think was bothering me as well was uh, to some extent I was happy to do that, but to another extent I still wanted to get through my specialty training. I still had all these career goals that I wanted to meet and I could just see that if we didn't work out a better balance that I would end up sort of taking the back seat rather than just taking, you know, a seat alongside and just being more, you know, the housewife, um, the doctor's wife, as opposed to having my own career. And that was what really drove me to look into how to manage the mental load and how to make 
a relationship with two working parents more even and more fair for us because look, we both started university at the same time. We graduated at the same time. We sort of worked alongside and both put a lot of time into our careers up until that point. And I think that there do have to be changes and allowances and priorities that shift when you have a family. Um, but I just think that it has to be a deliberate change and a deliberate shift and be worked out as a couple what that will look like for your family rather than just an automatic sort of assumption that a lot of those organizational things, a lot of that emotional labor just falls to the mother and the wife. Did your partner recognize it as an issue? I think it's hard for men, obviously speaking, on his behalf to recognize it because it is so much of the invisible stuff and that's why I think it feels so draining and exhausting because it's almost not even appreciated because you're doing the tasks before you're even before your partner even notices that they needed to be done you know if I had have said oh I just spent the last hour and a half sorting through Hannah's clothes and getting her you know into the next size six to twelve months not three to six months in uh, you know boxing up the old clothes, then he would have said, "Oh, I could have done that." But the point was, well, you know, why do I have to ask, and why do I have to be the one to always see it? So certainly, once we had discussions about it, yes, um, he could he could see it and appreciate it to a certain degree. But I don't think it was something that was really on his radar. Mm. Well, I think, you know, even though we are in twenty twenty now, and you know, we've come so far. Well, we've certainly come a long way since our parents and our grandparents' generation in terms of gender equality. But, I mean, most of us probably still grew up in a household where our father was the main breadwinner and our mother did most of the childcare and household duties. So I think for both the both partners in the relationship, you're really having to break the mould of what was role modelled to us growing up. Yeah, and look, interestingly, um, my husband's mother did have a career and does have a career and did work when he and his sister were young. So the idea of mum going off to work and mum and, you know, the mum having a career was something that he was really supportive of and he really wanted to be, and, and I, should, I shouldn't use past tense, he really wants to be involved and like an equal partner. And so I'm lucky in that sense in that there was motivation there it was just about how do we break these sort of ingrained kind of cultural conditioning that just tends to make women take up the emotional labor and the mental load out of habit and men just not really see it as their role or their thing or even know that it's a thing. Mm. When things started to get a bit hard for you, you did start to Google ways to find help initially, which I like that a doctor also turns to Google to <laughs> see what see what help is out there. What were you Googling exactly and what were you hoping to find? I guess I thought because it was something that had grown a lot of traction, um, if you think of the Emma cartoon from the French cartoonist, which is I think it's called uh, you should have asked, which is all about the mental load. Like that went viral and had millions of likes two years ago. I really thought someone must have worked out a solution for this. And then when I Googled, it was really just like, oh, I did this for a week and the house fell apart and then I just had to start doing it again. Uh, but there was nothing that really got around that 
psychological and subconscious thinking change, which was really just that that issue of I think about it before he does, so it ends up being my problem. Um, so I, I guess I expected that there would would have been a few more strategies out there, but there really wasn't anything at that time. There's since been a couple of books written, uh, but I think it's still a growing area where they're still we're still at the point where we're talking about it as a problem and working out solutions is still sort of coming next. Mm. So how did you end up tackling the issue? So I think I recognised that that it was these ingrained habits and this kind of social conditioning and I went back and thought about ways that we can you know, use kind of neurocognition, neuroscience, psychology strategies to actually reverse habits and change those patterns. And so the first step was just me recognizing how often I was thinking about things and then in doing so making what was invisible visible and having something to then talk about. Um, And then from there having those discussions at a point in time when, you know, we weren't both heightened by whatever like little thing had maybe triggered um, uh, some frustration and then moving forward to actually dividing tasks wholly and giving each person full responsibilities over certain things rather than me or one person being the one who's in charge and just delegating out Mm. from there. Um, And really I did think just because it's so, you know, socially conditioned and ingrained in us that it probably wouldn't work. Like the strategy I formed, I was like, oh, you know, this might be one of those things that holds out for a little while and then we end up back at square one. But what I found was because we had gone through and I had gone through and used some of those psychological strategies that it did actually last. And I think that was kind of the the gold in, in the strategy and, and what made me think, hang on, this is this has really been quite, you know, transformational in in my household and my relationship. So look, you've become so passionate about this issue that you've now developed an online course to help other women more fairly share the mental load with their partners. What does the course cover and what can women expect to gain from the course? So the course is exactly what I followed. It's a six-week program and it's exactly what I what I had done and what we had done as a couple. Um, and so it really goes through that first stage using those psychological strategies to make what's invisible visible and then giving you a language to actually have conversations that can be productive and generate change within the partnership and then some strategies to maintain that change going forward and so within that course we go through what those strategies are and how they work Um, I think the first step really is just and one thing that through the mental load project I'm trying to generate is just more discussion around the topic because initially just having the language and knowing what it is even is the best place to start for having that conversation so if you if you know some things you've heard today or some things you've heard about the mental load previously you know have resonated with you and you do think that it's something you'd like to find out more about what I'd say is yeah read a bit more 
you know, maybe you can have a look at my website, um, mentalloadproject.com, or you, I've got an email newsletter community too that you could join from the website so that you can learn a little bit more, have a little bit more terminology and language around it, have conversations with your partner, and then, you know, if you've had the conversations and you've sort of reverted back to old habits in a few weeks, then maybe that's sort of when the course might be useful because it might be that the habits that you have and both partners have are really quite ingrained and, you know, from not even just a time within your relationship, but as we were saying, you know, even early on as children, the sort of emotional labor just tends to become the girl's domain rather than the boy's. Mm. And I mean, as a doctor, you'd be more used to treating people face to face. So why did the idea of developing an online course appeal to you? It was a deliberate idea to have it as a digital course because it the material isn't something that needs to be taught one-on-one. It's not something that you know, you need to discuss in an, on an individual basis. Um, so that's one reason. Two is just from a time point of view. It means that I can reach more people. And three, I think um, within the course, there'll be a online group that you can then um, discuss and share experiences if you so choose with other participants. And that can be really motivating um, for change. And any sort of change does require a degree of motivation um, that you have to have and having that group experience can be really helpful. And I personally think that this is a course for women um, and their partners. And I've targeted at women because I think it's women who often realize that there's a problem um, because we feel the weight of that mental load. But actually, there's such a benefit for the men in our lives too because they suddenly feel like they are more part of this. They feel connected to what's going on in their house, houses, in their lives. And so it's a mutual benefit. And actually, once a load is shared, it's not then an overwhelming load for both people. It's actually just part of life that we can all deal with. How much of a learning curve has it been to firstly develop this as an online course and then to get it out there to the world? Look, that has been a huge learning curve. All of that promotion and social media and marketing and lead generation, all of that is not something that I've ever thought about before. And so it's been really helpful to be guided by people who've done that before. And I've so I've participated in a couple of online programs and online courses myself, which have taught me that and also been part of a lot of groups um, to gain feedback and gain ideas uh, and strategies for that. So yeah, I would say that that has been the biggest learning curve. The actual strategy and the teaching side of things. I think that that's, um, like I said, developed from lots of combined experiences I've had and education experiences that I've had over the course of my life. It's been the tech side of it, doing the website, um, you know, working out, um, making sure the emails are sent at the right time and to the right people and that the payment system works. And all of that has been the side that's been new to me. So what do you hope to achieve with your new online business? I am still very keen to practice medicine and still very keen to be a pediatrician. And so I don't want something that takes away from my ability to do that. I would like to help people. And I really do think that this is an area where our generation do need new strategies and, and help with. And so to be able to reach women for whom it would be useful would be what I'd hope. Um, and look, if it got to the stage where, 
you know, there was then a community of us who'd gone through it just to continue to keep spreading the word, keep spreading the strategies. That would be amazing. Um, I guess it's a bit of a funny business goal, but eventually I would like the course to be done out of business. Like I would like this not to have to be something that is taught. I would like, you know, women in 20 years time or less, I would like my daughter's generation not to have to sit down and think about how do we deliberately divide the mental load. I would like it just to be something that they've seen growing up and that it's just done both sons and daughters. It's just what's done and, and how we live. Um, so I guess it's a funny business plan to have, but ultimately I would just like like the mental load to be shared and like women and men to have equal opportunities to participate at work and at home. Brilliant. Well, look, we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've taken some pretty brave steps in your life, whether it was working overseas in war-torn countries or sharing some of your own personal experiences as you have today to help other women manage the mental load. How have you found the courage to push yourself out of your comfort zone to take on these new challenges? I've been very blessed by a supportive family and I think that that's really grounding and helpful when you're faced with new challenges. I think it's still something that I need courage for, but I think it is um, good to take the time to reflect on the things that, you know, the challenges that I have had before that I have been able to work through and just see that these challenges are just new challenges, different challenges, new opportunities for growth and learning. Um, and hopefully, and not just for me, but for many women. Mm, I think that's a really nice way of looking at it as opportunities rather than <laughs> scary challenges. Um, and, you know, as you said, we are living in a time where things are changing quite rapidly for women. And because of that, I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women. So who are some of the women who you look to and who inspire you? So it's hard to make a short list. <laughs> Um, but thank you for giving me the chance to think about this um, for the last day or two because I've been able to narrow it down to a, a couple who I think both um, epitomize that idea of being able to create your own journey as a woman alongside, you know, your partner who might also and is also you know very successful. And so one woman who um, I have, you know, read about I've never met but Michelle Obama so reading her autobiography at the end of last year sort of at the time when I was just about to go back from maternity leave was really inspirational and not even the time when she was first lady and you know setting up lots of projects that she was passionate about and really making that role into her own but what was even more inspirational was the time before that before Barack was going to be the president, when she was just trying to negotiate, how does she still have a career when she's now a mother? How does she still have a career when he's got to travel interstate for his work? How do they have a family life with that? And how do you set up your priorities there? And so I found her um, autobiography really interesting and inspirational for that. And the other uh, woman that I also find very inspirational is Professor Catherine Maitland. And so she is a professor now and made a huge contribution to medicine uh, and especially medicine in developing countries and resource poor countries. She's famous for what's called the FEAST trial, which was looking at fluid resuscitation in East Africa and what the right uh, 
quantities and, and protocols sh- should be in really, really sick children. And her work has gone against the convention of what everyone in medicine has done for years. And even now she's still trying to um, debate with the World Health Organization about using her research to actually inform the the guides and the protocols and the evidence base out there. And I heard her speak at a conference earlier this year and it was really inspirational to hear how she had continues to strive to to use her work and her knowledge and resources for the betterment of of healthcare and and the health of children, as well as the work she does sort of nurturing more junior doctors and research staff. And on top of that, she spoke a little bit early on in the conference about making her career whilst she was, you know, the wife of someone who was also very successful. And she'd initially got a scholarship when she was quite a junior doctor and there was some comment made oh, I didn't know we were giving these two wives now because her husband had got the same scholarship. And so like they're both professors now and both very accomplished people. And so just the fact that she's been able to accomplish as much as she has in professionally um, as well as, you know, have a family and nurture and mentor other women who are um, and men but um, she has a very strong um, female team as well unfortunately she hasn't written an autobiography yet so I'm still yet to <laughs> yet to see the intricacies of how she did that mm. um, but certainly someone I, I have drawn inspiration from well yeah I mean I think reading I read Michelle Obama's book too and it is top of my list as one of my all-time favorite reads but what I did appreciate about it was that she did give such insight into what was going on in her mind at such different points in her mm. career and her life and, you know, so not just seeing this success that her family's been but all of the worries, you know, very human, normal worries that she had and how she managed to get through them and, as you say, how to balance her own um, professional goals with what became such a big yeah. <laughs> part of her life with the, her husband becoming president. And just finally, if there's someone listening out there thinking, you know, perhaps they'd love to try something different in their life or career, um, but perhaps they're feeling a bit uncertain or worried about making a change, do you have any final tips for them? I feel like I'm still kind of there, (laughs) (laughs) and as we all probably are. But I would just say have, have a listen to other women, read other stories, gain that inspiration and see that it's possible because often what we see like the the people um who are successful and the the people whose things we buy or who are successful in business or the the people who are successful in research whose papers we read or wherever we might come across them in our lives we sort of see them at that point of their success and so you know listening to podcasts like these or, or reading you know books like Michelle Obama's you can see that there's a process that we've all gone through and that we all continue to go through and None of us started where we wanted to be. And so know that that is, it's a journey for all of us. I love that. Thank you so much, Robin, for your time today. Thank you, Jackie. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Robin Miller, founder of the Mental Load Project, which you can find at mentalloadproject.com. The next course kicks off soon in March. So if you're interested, there's a link and a limited time special offer for our listeners in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. 
What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.